talk a little bit about my own work, and then about the hospital, and then about uh, a visit I made to Egypt, um, which had a bearing on what I did in the hospital, and finally how the hospital project turned out, and how we actually carried it all out and put it up and what we did. So that's what I'm going to talk about. This is a, a, a painting that I, it's a painting I did in the 50s called Pink Landscape. And as you can see, um, I was very influenced by Seurat and um, Impressionism in general. And what I wanted to paint in this, at this particular time was the heat and the light that uh, came off this plane in Italy. And I tried to weave a scintillating or sparkling or um, crackling kind of sensation um, through the use of these tiny little pinpoints of colour. Something I learnt from Fiora was the relationship between light and colour. They're very closely connected. One might think that if I had been trying to render, as it were, or depict this hot plane, that I would perhaps have tried to um, suggest it in some way, to um, make a direct evocation of it. But I think that I was, without knowing it, more drawn already towards abstract painting, and what I tried to do was to generate a feeling of the kind of shimmer of heat. This is a painting I made quite a long time afterwards, and in the interval I had done quite a lot of work with black and white. But I was also working with colour, and I found it extremely difficult to find a basis for doing so. But this was perhaps the very beginning. These are, in fact, coloured greys, in that if you look at the top and bottom of this detail, you'll see that, <coughs> in fact, um, there's a greyed turquoise and a greyed red in pairs. And as it moves towards this bleed or burst of um, purer colour, um, you get a different kind of brilliance. And in, the, in a way, I was burying, as it were, a colour sensation in a matrix of a different sort, which has a curious kind of equivalent to the dots and dashes of the pointillist painting. It was something repeated, something which provided a vehicle or a binder for the painting, and through which a certain sort of experience could come. This is a study made quite a bit later. The blacks and the greys are identical throughout, and they are simply surrounded by pairs of a triad of colours. And the colours, so to speak, because they face each other, jump across to each other. They mirror and they turn 
those greys in particular, and the blacks as well, but less so, they turn the greys into a tinted grey. That was like what I had literally painted out in the painting beforehand, beginning to happen through the kind of light that comes out of colour. This was in a way a, a resolution of that study, rough and crude as the study was. This is actually articulating um, what you might call a nugget of basic visual information into a painting, which is a completely different thing. As you can see on the edge of the painting, on the left side of this detail, the space, so to speak, is quite flat. But as you move across to the right side, it builds up a thicket, a cluster. The colours mirror again and tint the greys, they tint the whites, they tint the blacks. But they are divided by a thin red line, which acts like a kind of um, irritant, ridge, or a little aggregate in the painting. That's a study of twisted bands. The reason for the twist was to try and bring colours, although mirroring, into a juxtaposition in which they could slightly shift as they moved. Now if you, for instance, look at, follow the orange, you'll see that it goes from being quite yellow the yellowy-orange, where it's affected by the green, to a red, where it's affected by the violet. The green goes from being a yellowy-green to being quite a cold turquoise. And the violet shifts from being quite cool, nearly blue-violet, down to red-violet. So the colours are interacting and moving through the change of juxtaposition. Well, those are, the same <coughs> those are the same twisted principles in curves. That's a detail of a painting called Clepsydra. Um, and the curving twists are assembled in clusters, which when they're collected over the surface, give a kind of uh, soft breathing, dematerialized, diaphanous kind of feeling. These are two studies which are the same five colours uh, in which there are twists within twists. And the actual palette, the actual paints are the same, but simply by different juxtapositions, one gives off a cool, fresh coloured light and the other a peachy, warm light. And that's a painting called Andante, in which these uh, clusters, different shifts of colours, are assembled in a much more random way. This is, this is fairly recent work, and in fact made after my visit to Egypt. And there, is, there are also clusters of colours in, in that painting, but they are, if it were, untraceable. There are a certain violet which when you try to find it, you can't find it. There's a fresh green, a sort of orange, and it's as though 
all the colours contribute to one uh, bloom, one kind of colour envelope, one feeling of colour. Now these are the same colours in which I set out to do exactly the opposite. Having got a, a fresh and glowing light, this is about colour cancellation, about crossing colour out. And by crossing it out, making a different kind of grey. As a, a, if you like, a third type of um, tinted grey. The colours are out. Red cancels the turquoise, blue cancels the yellow, and they are mashed into a um, silver sensation. And this is the last of the paintings I'm going to show you. This is the same group of colours again. It's called Rose Rhyme. And it has a different mood, a different colour character. Now, this is Liverpool Hospital. As you can see, it's big, extremely big. It's, in fact, the largest hospital unit of its kind in Europe. It was very ambitious, and it has been extremely successful in all the major functions that it set out to do. It wanted to gather under one roof the various faculties, facilities, medical facilities, usually scattered around the city. It took 10 years to build, and very soon after it was completed, a committee was formed with the idea of inviting artists to decorate the hospital. And uh, this committee asked four Liverpool artists and myself if we could do something. I went and had a look, and I didn't know at all what to do. I was offered very nice walls on which I could paint something, and, um, but I thought that this was really not to the point. It seemed to me that the problem in this particular hospital which was having quite a big graffiti um, worry, was um, partly because of its size and partly because of it being so very streamlined, um, it, had, it had an anonymity. You couldn't tell uh, on which floor you were or where you were going. And this was a very big problem. Well, obviously, the staff get to know where they are very quickly. But just because of that, they easily overlook the fact that the largest part of the hospital population are all newcomers. There are over 1,000 outpatients each day alone. So the sense of being bewildered about where you are seemed to me to be the thing that I really wanted to try and tackle. And I thought it was going to be quite easy. I thought uh, if I get some colour coding, I get some uh, nice colours, I can easily work out a, a system whereby you can approach a certain centre on accelerating or deaccelerating diagonals of colour so that you would know that you were moving towards, say, the heart of the dental area 
or the eye area or the maternity unit according to how these colours built up and went down. But when I was sent maps in order to try and put this into practice, of course it's a three-dimensional problem because these things are linking in a thousand different ways. And it was just too vast a logistic thing for me to cope with. It would have deteriorated into something quite else. And I also found that the colours which I'd taken up, when I put them up in the hospital, um, looked extremely bad. And they did so because the walls weren't dressed enough. They didn't have that kind of finish which can take a plain colour. And they, the, the plain colour simply looked raw. So I was very... Um, disheartened and at a loss and at that point I went to Egypt. I went to Egypt by chance uh, on my way to Tokyo and um, throughout my visit there it never occurred to me that this visit would have any bearing either on my work or certainly not on the co uh, hospital problems. As you can see this is um, a very elegant very beautiful, very serene little pyramid, part of the Giza group. This desert where the, where the pyramid is, is in Egyptian religion, the land of the dead. They reckoned that it was a place that was quite nearby. As you can see behind the pyramid, you can see the green of the Nile Valley, and you can also see, very faintly, the other escarpment. The Nile Valley itself was a very thin, slender ribbon of fertile cultivation, each side of which is this very arid desert land. And to the Egyptians, that land was very simply the land of the dead. Over there, the people lived who had happened to die. And they equipped them with everything that they would need in that future life, you can see from this photograph how, how amazingly close life and death must have been to the ancient Egyptians. This is the Nile. Going further up from Lower Egypt to Upper Egypt, and the desert changes. It becomes a higher escarpment, more rocky, less deserty. And there's a shift in the way of dealing with uh, the gods, a cultural shift. This is the palace with its shrine of um, Hatshepsut, Queen Hatshepsut. Um, as you can see, it's backed into the rock. It's been reconstructed very carefully by, I think it's some French... Um, people. These, this is the type of column with its beautiful carving that the visitors inside are looking at. Those figures would have been painted. And you can see how beautifully that carving holds the flat surface of the stone. This type of carving is called intaglio. That means that the surface is completely intact. 
the carving is sunk within a hollowed area. It has a beautiful way of emphasizing lines. And if you can see the, the plane of that cheek, it is on exactly the same level as the surrounding wall. So there could be, this was a very high point in uh, art, and there could be no better means of holding a wall surface absolutely firm. This is a method we're much more used to. This is relief. And in this case, it was used in the interior of the tomb. Obviously, it would also have been painted. It's softer, gentler. In a way, it's less um, assertive. It's not the, the strong, emphatic line, which is perhaps suitable for an outside statement, is not necessary in an interior. Those little ribbons that you can see over the head of the seated figure is a formalization of water being thrown. This is Luxor, the Valley of the Kings, and it was here in these huge, high, rough escarpments that the pharaohs were buried. Deep underground, and when you leave this bright, chiseling heat and descend slowly into the earth, in their cases a very long way, you gradually lose all sense of orientation. You don't know how deep you've gone, where north is, south is, in fact where you are at all. But when you get to the bottom you do know. In what you might call true no man's land, in a place that was never meant to be seen, in which no movement was expected, they have made a place, and they have made that by painting out the situation. They have painted the architecture, and they have peopled the architecture. And when this <coughs> these tombs were absolutely intact, there would have been large, painted carvings, freestanding figures, vehicles, pottery, many things. If I can imagine the actual throng that would have been enclosed in these places. The one on the left may look to you as though it's been restored. It's not. It's in perfect condition. And a very beautiful, tiny thing, I think, which shows how, a little bit of how they think. This queen, wearing her sash, which is divided over her hip, that's a device which turns up over and over again. And it's a very interesting way of thinking. How does one know it's her hip and not her stomach? If you do know, the one on the right was in fact perhaps my favourite of all the pharaoh's tombs, in that that colour, when you first encountered it, which this slide unfortunately hardly shows, was a brilliant golden ochre. 
And it was as though the sun itself was contained down there. Now, this is a late tomb, a depleted kind of frame of mind. Writing has almost entirely taken over the imagery. It's very beautiful writing. But the, it has an austere grandeur about it. And the drawing out on the walls is emphatic. These are sometimes called the workman's tombs, but they are in fact the tombs of the nobles, those of lesser rank who hired, as it were, off hours from the skilled craftsmen who were working on the pharaoh's tombs. They're not as deep the underground. They were, I think, probably more rapidly robbed, and you'll see that some of the um, murals which I'm going to show you have been defaced. They've been defaced in quite an interesting way, in the eyes have been taken out, or faces have been obliterated. And I don't know, but one guesses, feels, that probably, um, when they were, it might have been done by robbers, who felt they were being watched. The formality is gone in terms of um, you can allow representations of life in a much more relaxed way. But uh, the success of making a framework in an eccentric space, I think, is a triumph. That's up above you, it's the same to uh, right up above you, but it holds its place. It's the equivalent of um, Daphne, the nymph being changed into the tree. You can see the water again, and on their heads they're wearing perfume combs. This is a, <coughs> was to me a very, very beautiful tomb, because it's, it's very clearly all one group of colours. And here, what they're doing on the ceiling is what I was doing with that cancelled-out colour painting. They've made a beautiful, silvery, soft sensation by juxtaposing the colours in such a way that they cancel each other out. You can just see the traces of it at the top. It's a lovely, fresh tomb and a beautiful rhythm in those kneeling figures. So it's colour, the same group of colours, boldly displayed or woven into making a different kind of visual texture. This pink, incidentally, in the detail, which you can find in the top, is um, made by mixing that earth red and white. And while the earth red, in its pure form, has a kind of yellow look, it's a curious fact that when you mix it with white, it takes on a cool pink. That's a blind harpist. Into these tombs went all the things that had coloured the life of the owner, his treasures, his work, and everything that he would have liked and wanted to have in the land of the dead. 
I think the blind harvest is particularly beautiful. This very delicate, tender hand. And that representation of blindness is amazing. The woman on the, the right is mourning. She has ashes on her head and her hand is on the foot of a mummy. Beautiful treatment of her garment. Those huge, simple folds. Big, generous lines. The one on the left, I think, is a marvellous use of black as a colour. The Egyptians were not only masters of fair, sparse imagery, but they were also capable of a richness, a density, a sumptuousness. This is a, a fishing, a, a hunting party on the Nile. It has a tremendous feeling of action about it. You can practically hear the flutter of those birds and the thrashing, so to speak, in the papyrus at the edge of the water. The formalization of the papyrus is a very cunning way of making another wall division and a little echo of the screens above. This is another version of hunting on the Nile. And it also shows, just like their attitude to black, their feeling about white. White is a real colour, and they show it to be a real colour in these transparent garments by painting the background a very light blue, which it is in fact, very pale blue. And even when they're relaxed in their handling, the principle of formalizing continues. That water is an absolutely flat representation of a plane. These are other things that are going on in that painting. I think the little cricket is, you can hear the crackle of all of that. And it's wonderfully formalized. You see the repeated B, how it seems to zip along, almost making a sound, through the legs and then up in reverse on the top of the head. This little figure is at the side, was at the side of that uh, hunting party. And it's very interesting because she's turning completely around. Her knees are in fact facing that way, facing left, and her head is facing right. It's quite, it's absolutely convincing and it's untraceable. This is a, a very small, tiny noble's tomb. And it was probably, it's probably an impoverished little tomb, I generally stand at the time. And the ceiling was rough-hewn. And rough-hewn to a depth of bumps and projections bearing up to six inches. But they have sort of a wonderful, ingenious little device of how to cope with it. They just spread this vine over it. 
And that's a detail of the vine, which is just as economical in the way it's painted as the solution is to the given physical problem. Those vine leaves are, must have been painted as a single flat disc of colour. Three little strokes added on top. Even in the smallest details, when in fact it's just a few brush marks, the prevailing cultural conventions are still held. This, I think, is a, is, is a very charming one. It's, it's a lovely, it's a funny one. And the Egyptians have a great sense of humour. And anyone who has actually watched a flock of cattle being driven has seen this kind of pushing, shoving, jostling, um, these staring eyes. It's beautifully observed. People sometimes think that Egyptian art, or what I believe it is actually called, they, they call them ideograms. They say they're equivalent for ideas. I don't think that's so. I think they are more like sensograms. They are equivalent for sensations. So I came back and I was faced with the hospital. So I took stock of the wall, which is in fact the one on the left. As you can see, it has a two-inch economy skirting board. And a nine-inch heavy piece of rubber to for to, to you know prevent um, trolleys, odd things, bits of equipment damaging the walls. Now the, the things like this um, two-inch skirting board were economies which were forced on the hospital because um, over this lengthy period of building, costs had escalated and economies simply had to be made, and they, of course, were made in the area of appearance. So, there's no doubt about it. I much prefer, as a flat design, this elegant little one on the left. But in physical fact, in the corridor, it tips over. When you're standing there, that little two-inch thing at the bottom is even smaller. And the bumper bar seems even bigger. So, although that is not a flat design, one on the right is an attempt I made to try and redress, give myself a skeleton, as it were, of how to cope with the wall. I increased the uh, skirting to six inches by shaping it. That is to say, she just painted a bit more above. And I added a black band up aloft to try and give some a bit of balance to it. Something to look at up there. Something to fill the vacancy. And then on that I hung a basic colour which I lightened with some white. And this was the first um, uh, design I made. 
and it, it's rough and rather crude and uh, I thought well that's obviously at least a start it does the job but it is a bit rough so I went on and I refined it well I didn't realize it at the moment more painfully spaces more painfully issues and that is the one on the left I took them all up to Liverpool and we pinned them up on the walls and we waited to see what people would do and um, they seemed to like them and the, the staff, the nurses in particular, um, preferred the turquoise one on the right. So that one was chosen. The next problem was how were we to get it up on the walls? It wasn't practical to paint it, alas. Um, corridors are immensely busy. Hundreds and hundreds of people go through them all the time. So we thought that we would print it onto vinyl, like a super wallpaper, and we would print it beautifully. That is to say, the standard of a fine art print. And Graham Henderson, who makes silkscreen prints for me, took endless trouble to actually get the right saturation and density. That means sometimes with a colour like yellow, one printing doesn't do, two printings don't do, maybe three printings are right. Eventually you build up the colour. So we printed it in panels and fixed it and waited to see what would happen because the matron, the chief nursing officer, said that she liked it very much indeed, but she thought that in a hospital with a graffiti problem, that piece of white right in the middle was an open invitation. So we thought we would chance it. And uh, in fact, it's been up for 18 months. And of course, it's battered and it's dust. And it's just exactly being used. It can be washed, it can be replaced, it's what you might call a working decoration. And so far, there hasn't been one single bit of graffiti on it, and that for me is the acid test. This is it in situ. Those are, those are the bumpers on the doors, of course. And that's um, going from a bit of old corridor, as it were, into the other area. And that really is all I have to say.